The financial services game is changing, and banking as a service is leading the charge. We've interviewed some of the industry's biggest changemakers in our brand new six-part documentary video series, Decoding Banking as a Service, which has just launched on our YouTube channel. Jump inside the minds of some of the biggest names in the space and find out why Bass is so hot right now and how your business can reap the benefits. To watch the current episodes and get instant updates when new ones are released, head to bit.ly forward slash decoding Baz. Okay, let's start today's show. From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. This week, we bring you TransferWise goes down under as they join Australia's real-time payments network. Stripe gets into business lending and Mogo goes into rainforest mode in their new app. And we will explain what that means a little bit later on. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to episode 485 of Fintech Insider. I'm Adam Davis, and today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host Kate Moody. How are you doing, Kate? Yeah, not too bad. Starting to feel a little bit festive. Received my first Christmas physical Christmas card today, so that's very nice. I'm not sure if like physical Christmas cards are still meant to be a thing for someone who works in fintech, but um, I might like them. So <laughs> nice. always happy to receive one. The personal touch, it goes a long way. Uh, nice, well, good, glad to hear that. And of course, Kate, we, we are not alone. Uh, we're joined uh, still very remotely, but the end the, the end is nigh, but uh, still very remotely at the moment by some awesome guests. Uh, so making his uh, FinTech Insider debut all the way from Estonia, we have Lars Trunen, who's the head of UK product at TransferWise. Uh, Lars, welcome to the show. Hi, Adam. Thank you very much. Um, we've got some exciting news for you this week. We'll come to that later on, uh, but it is great to have you with us. How's Estonia, by the way, at the moment? Oh, Estonia is beautiful. It's very dark. It's very cold, but we just had our first snow just a few days ago and it makes you feel all warm and tingly. Oh, nice, nice. Uh, and making a very, very welcome return, we have Ali Patterson, who's the editor-in-chief of at Fintech Finance. Uh, Ali, welcome back. Always a pleasure to be here, Adam, Kate, Lars. Looking, by the way, 485. That's um, that's that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah, we're, we're like uh, we're getting old. <laughs> it feels like we're getting old. We're hitting into like the upper 500s on LinkedIn. We just have a plus now. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're aiming for. Um, right, let, let, let's get into the uh, let's get into the news, uh, and we'll start Lars with a topic obviously very close to your heart. Uh, Transferwise RINs restricted banking license in Australia. Um, so this was a an article on Finextra, but it's been covered by uh, by qu- quite a lot of press. Transferwise has been granted a license to gain direct access to Australia's real time payment system. Uh, under the license, they will be able to provide uh, purchased payment facilities. We'll come back to what that means in a minute. Uh, as a limited authorized deposit taking institution. Uh, TransferWise will join PayPal as the second non-bank to gain direct access to Australia's real-time payments network. That's super cool. Again, we'll come back to that in a sec. Uh, TransferWise now intend to apply for a settlement account with the Reserve Bank of Australia. Uh, Lars, uh, an obvious place to start. Uh, Firstly, many congrats. Uh, Quality news, awesome news. Uh, Can you tell us what this means? Uh, And I guess uh, explain what a uh, I suppose a purchased payment facility is, and what this means for yourself, for TransferWise, and obviously for your for your future plans. Yeah, well, we are very very excited about this development, and and to kind of explain this one, maybe a bit of context. Um, we did something very similar uh, in the UK. So in the UK, we don't have a uh, purchased um, 
payment facility license or a, or a banking license, if you will. We have we are what's called an authorized e-money institution. And in Australia, that is basically the equivalent of an e-money institution. So you're kind of like a bank that can do payments and can hold customer money, but you're not allowed to um, participate in lending facilities, which is something that TransferWise today uh, isn't interested in. And so in the UK, uh, a couple of years ago, something fabulous happened. Uh, in 2017, the Bank of England announced that, you know what, um, it's not only banks now who can have a settlement account with the Bank of England to um, make customer payments. It's now also um, e-money institutions and payments companies like TransferWise. And so it was just about nine months later, in April 2018, when TransferWise became the first non-bank payment service provider to be directly connected to the UK's faster payment scheme. And why, why do we do that is because of our mission. Our mission has to do with, uh, well, bringing down the borders of money transfers around the world, offering instant, convenient, transparent, and eventually free payments. And whilst TransferWise operates through banks around the world, in order for us to achieve that mission, well, ultimately, at some point or another, we have to really carefully look at every cost element, every third party that sits between us and the payment. And the more direct we can be, um, the more we can deliver that mission to our customers. And that is exactly what this license now in Australia allows us to do down under. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, obviously, c- c- cost saving appears to be you know a primary driver. Um, it will, you know, no doubt reduce your cost of doing business because those intermediaries which sit between you know an, an, I- an IP and international payment, a d- domestic payment, are gone. Um, I sp- is that for you? Uh, do you see that as the only driver, or are there other uh, benefits that you may realise further on from this? Oh, there are a ton of benefits. Like, for example, um, instant payments is something that our customers care a lot about. Because if you think about it, if you're sending um, a large amount of money from uh, uh, one bank account to another, you, you can get a little bit worried, right? But if that amount goes from one country to another, that worry grows exponentially. And instant payments eliminate that worry immediately. And so by having direct access by having connections to Australia's new payments platform, we're allowed, uh, we're, we're able to um, bring instant payments to people sending money to and from Australia. So speed, price um, are definitely the primary reasons, but there are several others, including um, actually having a seat at the table and contributing to the development of the payment schemes locally in those countries. Yeah, it's very cool. I remember uh, working in a bank about four. I, I often reference this on this show, actually, so it's uh, it's quite apt that you're on. But I was I used to work in a bank about four or five years ago, and we were doing an international payments proposition. So I was in the, the payments team, and we were looking at you guys and thinking, my God, the volume that you guys were processing was was absolutely crazy. Uh, also, obviously, very competitive, uh, and the cost model for what we were running in the bank just you know at the moment it was a cash cow, but there was obviously a tipping point where uh, you know that cash cow was going to start reducing from a uh, customer volume perspective as people sort of woke up to the the fact that you guys were on the scene and, and companies like you were going to start to grow. And this really feels like, you know, do you feel this is, I guess, a, a maturity for TransferWise? Because it's something which, um, you know, I suppose we, we see you as mature in the UK. Uh, and, you know, it's, it, it's a default option for many people sending an in international payment. But do you think this sort of gives you like that... Uh, I suppose, that validity and that maturity to say, actually, do you know what? We're actually getting involved with the schemes, with the payment schemes, et cetera. It's a great question. Um, 
Yeah, I guess TransferWise has has grown quite a bit, uh, especially in in some of our mature markets, uh, the UK and in in many countries around Europe. But in the grand scheme of things, if you look at the amount of money that people send globally, and if you look at the amount of money that people still pay to incumbent institutions and hidden fees, um, we're just getting started on that journey and we still have a long way to go. Um, This new license in Australia definitely helps us do that in Australia, Um, but we still have a lot of countries and a lot of people around the world to reach. So uh, yeah, keep your eyes open. We're we're just getting started. Cool. Ali, you look like you've got a question. I was going to say, so I'm, I'm, I'm a TransferWise customer. Love you guys. Use you a fair bit. So I can now, I, I always find it interesting whenever I send money on there, whether it's instant, like there's some place that says instantly, some says about a day, some says a few hours. So Australia, as a customer now, that, that's now instant, right? So I can literally log on there and send, I don't know, a fiver to Ryan at Cape, and it should be like like that. So once we are completely connected to the payments platform, then uh, yeah, there's nothing stopping you from doing that. Flipping A. That's brilliant. Looking forward to that. And the corresponding banking system dies one step after another. <laughs> and if you think about it, it, that's how the world should be like. I mean, you can take out your phone and send an email to somebody in Sydney right now. It's going to be there in like a second and it's it doesn't cost you anything. And And effectively, an email is just bits and bytes on servers, right? But so is money. But for some reason, when you send a thousand pounds to Australia, um, 50 pounds less arrives because, you know, the exchange rate was, was, was twisted a little bit. That shouldn't be the case in 2020. And that's the problem we're trying to solve. That's awesome. Um, there's also, uh, and again, I'd love to get your feedback on this. Um, the company is also, this is uh, f- from the same article, the company is also looking to be one of the first non-banks to connect to the Singapore Fast Network. Uh, after the country com- uh, the country's central bank confirmed today uh, that it would open up direct access to the nation's real-time payment plumbing to non-bank financial institutions. Um, h- how important is that growth to your strategy? And, and are we seeing sort of a fuller Asian, uh, Asia play? Oh, it's tremendously important. I mean, um, if we could, we would try to get direct access in in every country where we operate. Um, Frankly, uh, the world of opening up uh, access to non-banks is still very fresh. The the UK spearheaded it in in the Western economies, and many countries are now following suit. Um, But in most countries around the world, we're still limited by what the legislation uh, uh, allows us to do. In fact, it's only now that, for example, um, uh, even in the European Union, where we are connected to uh, the European payment systems through our partners in, um, uh, in the Central Bank of Lithuania, it's only now that the European Commission has opened up its retail payment strategy to formalize access to non-bank payment service providers and e-money institutions around the world, uh, sorry, <laughs> around the EU. In the U.S., uh, the discussions are um, are still ongoing, and uh, it's going to take even more time. So we are, frankly, still constrained by the local legislation in a lot of uh, different areas. I think um, I suppose to build off the back of that, obviously, you know, really exciting news for you guys specifically, Transferwise specifically. But I think this is also super interesting from you know, thinking about the Australian market as a whole. You know, traditionally we've thought of that market is being very non-competitive, you know, having high focus on sort of big incumbent banks and the services they provide. 
but you know this starts to reinforce the sense that you know the Australian administration are trying to catch up, are trying to follow, as you say, Lars, like the lead of, of other markets by making it easier for competitors, both you know from Australia and internationally, to come and add value to Australian consumers. So I know that you know reading about it, there's still kind of various reviews and consultations going on. They're expecting to kind of make more changes in the new year, I think. But you know, exciting from a transfer words point of view, but also exciting from an Australian customer point of view that there could be more change coming in the future as well that will help to make it easier for those customers to get access to better value for money and better service fundamentally. Yeah, and I guess in, in Australia, what's uh, that there is quite a lot of, obviously there's neobanks, there's a lot of sort of tech uh, startups that are just emerging, I guess, especially over on the East Coast. Do, do you see that as a, um, as and, and also from, from our perspective, I guess it, it's so far away that you've almost, you know, from a longevity perspective, you tackled the hardest use case. Do, do, do you feel that uh, Australia is, is the hub, I guess, to launch that sort of, I guess, that Asian route? Um, and you see that as as a as a potential hub for you guys going forward. Um, Australia has always been um, an important part of Transitwise's business, and it's been it's been growing uh, rapidly every uh, ever since we launched it uh, some years ago now. And um, look, by the end of the day, um, uh, all of our customers matter, right? And, and uh, Australians as well. And it's really cool to see that these types of developments are really happening. Increased competition by the end of the day, it does mean getting a better product for, um, well, not just Australians, but people also moving to Australia, living in Australia, sending money back home from Australia, maybe Australian expats, uh, you know, who moved to the other side of the world to send money back home to Australia. So there are all these different types of use cases um, that have to do w- w- with our country. And, um, of course, we want to help as many people as possible. Um, if um, if there is more competition, it means that uh, you know everyone wins by the end of the day. Yeah, for sure. Um, and let's uh, thanks so much for that. That was uh, that was great insight. And we will um, we, we look to. See, I'm looking forward to sending money to Australia. I'm going to get definitely give it a go. That's awesome. Um, let's move on to the next story. Uh, it's around Stripe Capital, uh, who has extended their product lines to business lending. Uh, to online platforms. So uh, if you're a follower of Stripe online or uh, you like the news that come out of Stripe, this one's a biggie. Um, They're basically taking Stripe Capital, uh, which is their push into online business finance and lending, uh, essentially to the next level. So Stripe Capital first got off the ground in September 19, uh, offering customers and businesses uh, financing options through its online platform. On Tuesday, so it's last Tuesday, Stripe went live with the next phase in its business lending uh, campaign, which enables online platforms to offer financing to their business customers through Stripe Capital. Uh, Stripe Capital equips platforms with an end-to-end lending API through which they can pro- uh, provide financing options. And this enables platforms to offer uh, an additional service for online merchants in need of a quick infusion of cash or some working capital without having to build their own lending solution. It is also worth mentioning uh, that uh, just a little while ago, Sna- uh, Stripe also announced that they're launching Stripe Treasury, uh, which is another component to their um, <laughs> to their arsenal. Um, and their first use case client, you know, their friends and family is a small little e-commerce store called Shopify. Uh, so it's been a nice quiet week for uh, 
it's been a, yeah, a very quiet week for Stripe. Um, I guess uh, like loads of discussion points on this. You've got kind of like the embedded finance angle. You've got the banking as a service angle. You've got like uh, credit, you know, and, and, and what will credit look like next year? Um, there's, a, there's a lot of talk, uh, I suppose, in Q2 next year of, you know, furlough schemes and government uh, subsidy schemes uh, finishing and banks potentially then stepping back from lending because they are potentially going to be overexposed to the SMB markets. Um, do, do you kind of agree that that that, that is going to be an opportunity, and and therefore is now the right time for Stripe to be to be uh, launching this? Um, I think absolutely. I think it's part of a longer term shift we're seeing in terms of the way in which business lending is being allocated. So you know we're seeing more and more fintech players or kind of platforms trying to leverage real time transaction data to help better profile businesses and better understand the money that's coming in and out of businesses. So we know that that's something that uh, Stripe have been doing already kind of in the capital side. We know that's something that Square do also confusingly through their Square Capital. I always get the two confused because they've got exactly the same name, Um, but they're both, (laughs) they're both doing, they're both doing really smart things by using the connectivity that they have to help better understand who they're lending to in a way that you know incumbent banks struggle to so we're not seeing decisions being made based on old-fashioned you know application forms or um you know, credit scores in quite the same way you know it's, it's it's much smarter and so i think these are the businesses that will be able to adapt to the new reality of post-pandemic life much more effectively so i'm hoping that they'll be a big part of the recovery and helping businesses to get back on their feet yeah, and and they have said interesting that they see the primary bottleneck that limits the growth and expansion of most small businesses uh, is access to capital. Um, I guess Ali, do do you think that's? Uh, of, I mean, for all the work that we've done, it's definitely up there as one of the top jobs. But do you think this is the top job uh, and a, a stripe right to I guess uh, double down on that? Oh, 100%. But I, I don't. I don't think it's interesting. We're talking about the furlough schemes coming towards an end, and then uh, end of Siebel's last week. Um, I spoke last week with a couple of uh, small business lenders that are not on the or never been on part of the Siebel's or the uh, the bounce back scheme. And they were saying since the 30th of November, it's been the busiest time they've ever had this year um, because all the people are suddenly going, right, we need financing. Let's go there. And Stripe uh, setting themselves up to do this. I, I think they're going to absolutely, I mean, it's a, it's a hundred billion dollar company there. They've got the, the war chest. They've got the technology. Um, I, yeah, I think they're going to absolutely knock it out of the park here. When are they going to IPO? When, when can I buy shares in this company? Well, That's what everyone's asking. Do you, do you think they're going to? That's the thing. Cause that, it's going to be too late. <laughs> the the valuation is going to be so big. You're never going to make any money from it by the time the IPO. Um, that, that's what that's what we want to know. Um, I, mean, I, I hate these companies that you know are profitable and just don't. You know that they're profitable. They're slowly growing and they're staying private. You, you, you know the type, don't you, Lars? <laughs> Damn them. <laughs> Um, how much, uh, I, th- this is a, a capability that's in the US predominantly at the moment, and then we'll federate out, as is their treasury offering, which they've just announced. Um, how much, I suppose, is this a game changer for US uh, SMBs in particular, um, uh, understanding the kind of uh, geopolitics and, uh, and economies that, that happen over there? Lars, I'll point to you for that one. <laughs> that's a great question, isn't it? I mean, um, access to capital is uh, a problem for businesses, not just in, in one country, but all over the world, right? And it's no different in the United States. And uh, um, any tool 
in the 21st century that allows you to um, solve a hard problem through automation um, is, I think, um, um, a welcome proposition. Because if you think about it, like it's it's not too dissimilar from instant payments in a way, right? We're we're talking about almost an. Um, I'm presuming because they're offering an end-to-end -end API, they are um, offering an instant lending solution here, effectively, right? And and if that is the case, it means that um, they've had to put uh, put in a lot of thinking into understanding uh, how do you automate the decision making behind. Um, a difficult question, which is, should I, should I or should I not uh, offer uh, credit to a particular customer or a particular business, right? And if they figured it out, it means it's lowering the entry barriers to that. And given, uh, given the size of SMBs in the United States, um, it, is, it is clearly an important problem. There are a lot of mom and pop shops. There are a lot of emerging uh, online businesses uh, many of them capital constraint. A lot of them, um, you know, they just lack the initial seed or the um, uh, point in time working capital to to really boost where they are. So, in that sense, uh, the twenty first century technology is very welcome in the twenty first century. I'd say. <laughs> yeah, I remember speaking to uh, Rails Bank not so long ago, and they were talking. They just launched their uh, banking platform, which is uh, the first primary proposition is in credit in the States. And they were talking about the uh, the SMB and the consumer opportunity over there just being absolutely massive and relatively untapped, you know, in terms of uh, what credit looked like and the provision of credit maybe even five, 10 years ago. It looks similar, but it is moving now as, again, a lot of these BAS uh, players come to the market. And Kate wanted to um, mention that point to you in particular. Um, Thinking about the treasury example, but also obviously about the uh, the credit and lending example, how much of a I suppose of a example of BAS banking as a service and the ability to embed you know Stripe's journey within yours to serve your customers is this? And I'll, I'll give you the example. So one of those who are currently uh, I suppose the user cases, not not the Shopify, uh, but the company called Lightspeed. Uh, they're a POS and ecom platform. They're offering loans via Stripe Capital to their retailers. Um, and, and again, it's, so it's that kind of user flow. And, and how important is that to businesses to be able to just quickly plug into that kind of capability to lend? I think it's it's essential. And I think this is almost, you know, I still need to like scrape beneath the surface and try and understand more about how the precise end-to-end uh, -end kind of user journey will work. But just the, or the sense you're getting is that Stripe understand kind of almost that end-to-end -end customer growth perspective. So they're focusing on platform businesses, but they kind of understand that for their customers to grow, they need to help those platforms help their customers to grow. And so they're seeing it in a sort of really multifaceted way, which I think is um, perfectly suited to kind of banking as a service as a sort of approach because it's you know, much more modular, enables you to kind of really kind of adapt and scale and grow over time and in a different way. Um, but yeah, I think that's that's what's almost going to be the, the scariest thing about these new propositions is that Stripe is just constantly taking chunk after chunk after chunk after you know, out of all of these opportunity areas. Um, and it's interesting in you know, the Treasury example in particular, you know, they've got big bank partnerships behind that. So they're partnering with uh, with Goldman, uh, I think with Citi as well, perhaps. So they've now kind of got so big almost that you know the bigger players, the bigger banking players are having to work with them rather than against them. So I think it's a really interesting moment in terms of the US market as a whole and kind of the 
yeah you know the the balance of power in banking as a service as an emerging uh, space. The, the first question I was potentially going to ask, and that should everyone else in SMB B two B lending just give up? But um, <laughs> I do. I mean, you know, you might have your thoughts on that, but uh, that was what I was going to ask. But I, I asked, I asked a different question with more tact, I guess. Um, I don't know. Um, uh, we're just going to take a quick pause here while we're here for our sponsors, and we'll be right back after this. This episode is brought to you by Jack Henry Digital, the pioneers of personal digital banking. They are reviving the vision of financial institutions being on a first-name basis with customers by offering a platform for personal, human-centered service that puts the customer first. Your customers experience immediate accessibility while your employees get cloud-based, core-connected tools to offer service at the moment of need. To learn more, explore the team's latest insights at jackhenrydigital.com. This episode is also sponsored by Pento, the UK's first automated payroll platform. Say goodbye to clumsy spreadsheets, endless emails with external payroll providers and manual payments. Pento lets you run payroll in just a few clicks. It calculates taxes, integrates with platforms like Xero and makes all the payments and reports to HMRC and pension providers for you. Go to pento.io forward slash insider to run payroll for free for the rest of the year. That's pento.io forward slash insider. Buy now, pay later. Is it a force for good or in need for heavier regulation? Whether your team love or team hate, join the buy now, pay later debate at our After Dark event on Tuesday, the 15th of December. Get ready for a gripping debate followed by networking and the chance to win some awesome swag during our virtual bingo. Head to bit.ly forward slash December After Dark to secure your seat now. So the next story is JP Morgan and Lloyd set their sights on Starling as Saberdell plans to sell off TSB. So kind of two stories in one, but both addressing uh, Neo Bank's challenges and potential M&A activity. So uh, this was a story in the Times. JP Morgan Chase and Lloyd's have expressed interest in buying Starling Bank. Uh, if the digital challenger bank was purchased, it could lead to the first big merger of an established lender with a startup in the UK. Uh, the interest has come after Starling opened a data room as part of a plan to raise 200 million in new funding. Uh, it still may press ahead with that plan uh, with a view to fulfilling the long stated ambition of Anne Bowden uh, to float on the stock market. Someone's thinking of floating, that's nice. Um, a spokeswoman for Starling uh, said Anne has always said she will never sell to a big bank uh, and an IPO is still in our sights. Uh, meanwhile, Saberdell uh, has hired Goldman Sachs to find a buyer for TSB after Saberdell's talks to sell itself to BBVA uh, fell apart. Uh, it said it would prioritize its Spanish domestic business and would analyze strategic alternatives for creating shareholder value with regard to the group's international assets, including TSB. Whew, lot to unpack. Um, First of all, I guess, like holistically, are we surprised there's interest in Starling now? It's just posted a profit. I'm surprised there's not like a big queue of people all trying to to, to buy it right now. I, I don't think they're the only ones. Um, equally, I know uh, David has a bet that Starling is going to be the first UK challenger bank to sell. Um, I, I don't think that's going to happen. I, I don't. I don't think that's going to happen. I think more likely is Starling to acquire JP Morgan than JP Morgan to acquire Starling. Hold your horses. I mean, yeah. JP, Morgan's, JP Morgan's got big plans for their UK challenger themselves. Uh, so, fin 2.0. Fin 
Um, yeah, it is interesting. So JP Morgan are obviously looking to build a uh, consumer bank here in the UK, and they've been working on it for a long, long time. Um, wh- where's the value for them in this? Di- I mean, uh, you know, aside from the obvious, but you know, there's there's customers here. Uh, there's obviously profitability, and there's tech. Um, wh- where's the biggest value? Where, where are they going to get the biggest bang for their buck? Should should this happen? I am. I was actually speaking to Starling a few weeks ago, and I, I asked a question for them. I, I, I was joking about them acquiring J.P. Morgan, but one of the things that I asked as a thought experiment was: if you were to acquire, for example, HSBC's retail arm, what would you do? Uh, and they simply said, "Look, we've actually discussed this in quite big detail. All that we would do is use the current account switch service, move all their customers across to our platform, and throw out all of their tech," which was quite quite a baller move. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you, 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 you can see that, though. You can kind of see, well, that, that's a really simple solution for that. So if someone like Lloyd's was to do that, I would almost uh, say that I think you, you have obviously the tech that is, is, is the value. But there is also, I know you can go onto, onto Glassdoor, but the, I think there's quite a, a culture of innovation there that will hopefully, if there, if there is an acquisition, expand uh, and, do, and do effectively what Pixar did when Pixar was acquired by Disney and bring that culture of innovation and bring it upwards. Um, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of value there. Yeah, there is. And, and Kevin, we had Alex, Alex, uh, we had Alex Fern on the show a few weeks ago now, just before Starling posted the profit, and she was talking about their their cost base being so low versus incumbents and conventional banks. Um, sorry, Alex Freen, I should make that uh, make that adjustment. Um, Kate, from from your perspective. Um, is is it is this the tech? Is this the cost? Is this the cost base that like a company like not necessarily J P Morgan because you can look at it from a customer acquisition perspective with a, with a new service coming into market, but for Lloyd's and you know their cost to serve uh, their cost base is this a tech play? Um, well, like absolutely, hands up. I am not a tech expert, but certainly kind of when you look at what Starling have been able to achieve, you know, particularly this year, like the speed that they've been able to bring, uh, you. Know, their, their business lending, for example, to market during the pandemic, some of the other areas of the proposition they've expanded out quickly. Um, they clearly have, have built the bank from the ground up in a way that just enables them to move and operate in a completely different way to what lots of incumbents are doing. So absolutely kind of agree with with Ali the, that actually I'm sure a lot of people out there sat in incumbent banks would drool over kind of some of the capabilities that exist in a bank that has been built in that way from the ground up you know we know that starling have from the outset set out to be much more open you know kind of building out those marketplaces building out those kind of white label capabilities so i think there's lots of different strings to what they can do technically so absolutely i'm sure there's a, a huge element to it which would be driven by by the tech but you know they are also growing their their customer base you know not as large as monzo obviously but you know 1.9 million retail customers you know they've got a strong business banking proposition now they've obviously been able to grow that very cost effectively because of the support they've had from from the government through the RBS remedies fund so there's lots of things that have gone in their favor that I'm sure will make them attractive for multiple different reasons. Yeah, I mean, it was also one of the accredited lenders as part of the the government schemes that have obviously just happened in the summer. Um, I suppose, given that, and given what you know, we've just talked about what might happen in Q2, let's say next year, is this? Uh, I'm not saying Anne Bowden is is looking to sell, and uh, you know, I think she's been saying she's never going to sell for years and years, and I actually think she means it when she says it as well, <laughs> which you don't necessarily uh, think about when you hear other people say such a thing. Um, but do you think this is actually a good time for them to sell? The profits up, 
you know, they've just broken even. Um, they've just, you know, had a hike in customers because of what's happened in the summer. Um, you know, it's all good news stories. Is now the time to capitalize on that value? Or, you know, if you were a shareholder in that company, would you, would you, would you be for this? Well, that's the thing. Cause you said, Anne would never sell. Um, but unlike some of the other challenges, such as Revolut and Monzo, Anne's uh, shareholding of it is, has dwindled and almost almost rightly so because she believes so much in the in the product. Um, so uh, that, that is the one thing with all the best will in the world. Although Anne, I think, would fight tooth and nail to go I- IPO. It may not be her choice. I mean, we don't know. Um, but is this the right time? I I, I don't know. I, I think I think Starling's still got a lot more um, a, a lot more that it can it can show off. I think before it goes the either the acquisition or the IPO route. And and uh, switching to the second uh, part of this story, so talking about Saberdell and TSB, um, uh, uh, the obvious question is, who, who is going to buy this? I mean, they are a bank. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they, they are a, they are an organisation that has about five million customers, uh, deposits of thirty three billion, loans of about thirty one billion. So um, it, it's it's a sizable, if not enormous, bank, I guess. Um, who, who, with all the tech debt that it's got. Who is this for? Who would take this, and what are they going to do with it, Lars? I'll... <laughs> Lars has put his hands up like I don't know. <laughs> what can you do with this? Go on, um, Lars. You could take it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's the perfect play. No, it's not. <laughs> oh, it's a it's a tricky one, isn't it? Um, no, I'll pass this one. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, because I, I, but, sorry, go on, Ali. I think there there is an opportunity for for for, for somebody like I know, I know I said jokingly Lloyd's, but there is an opportunity for for uh, an incumbent bank, whether it be a domestic one in the UK, or even if someone like a JP Morgan is looking to launch their own challenger bank, is looking to get into the UK market. Why not go that way with the likes of uh, of TSB? And you know we are in a a, a a pandemic. They've got a lot of branches. They become the regional offices. Mm, it's, yeah. uh, it, and it'll, it'll be a steal as well. It would be a still, but there's a lot of branch debt. I mean, again, you know, yeah. is that the is that the kind of play you want to be doing in this kind of market? But it is an interesting uh, proposition, nonetheless, uh, if if it's true. Uh, Kate, l- last word on that story. Anything more to add uh, on? I suppose the the, the general, uh, you know, looking out from a macro perspective, the general industry at the moment, neo banks have they got have they got uh, things to look forward to going into next year? Oh yeah, I think absolutely, definitely. Um, obviously, we've reached a fairly advanced stage in the in the fintech market in the uk but i think it's you know we just will come to it later on but you know monzo have just raised a new round starting hitting profit transfer wise are doing some okay stuff you know um (laughs) (laughs) uh, no you're doing very well um yeah there's lots of exciting players in the market i suppose the only thing i was going to reflect on for this story is obviously rightly we focused on the uk market but i think it's interesting you know that sabadell sort of come out and said that they're going to go back to Spain and kind of focus on the Spanish market, you know, not, mm. not long after BBVA have said the same thing coming out of the US. Mm. So um, interesting that some of these banks that have been multi-market are struggling and are having to kind of retrench a bit and consolidate and focus on their markets. I mean, super interested to see what happens in Spain next year, like what they all think they're fighting over is, is going to be exciting to watch, watch play out. Um, but yeah, I think it's there's still plenty of opportunities for, for, for near banks, challenger banks, however you want to label it. And I think we're starting to see some of the sort of incumbent traditional banks really thinking long and hard about their strategy, kind of where, which markets they want to play in, where they want to focus their growth and their investment. Um, so I think we're going to start to see uh, interesting interesting dynamics play out in yeah. 2021. Go ahead, and I think um, it, um, 
Adam said, mentioned something really interesting earlier. It's like, what, what would be the future of banking as a service? And I think uh, with these types of trends, banking as a service can be quite tightly interlinked with those strategies uh, because banks are, are good, in fact, very good uh, at knowing who their customers are. They have a very close, sometimes even like a physical relationship in, in the sense that they've seen the person uh, in person, right? And uh, the fact that they might be um, migrating away from certain countries and focusing on their home countries doesn't necessarily mean that their um, uh, their access to uh, the global markets uh, is shrinking as a result. There are now all these opportunities out there to um, connect to a very easy API. It might be, um, you know, for lending purposes, or it might be, for example, like Monzo did. Um, to get access to international payments through the TransferWise mm. API. They don't have to be in yes. all these countries. They don't have to open up a local branch in Germany, et cetera, to offer international services uh, for their customers. Yeah, in- international banking is getting more local in a very weird way. You can grow and shrink at the same time. It's kind of cool. Um, let's move on to the next story. Thanks for that, Lars. Um, Black Friday payment data reveal uh, reveals rapid growth of buy now pay later um so this is a article in finextra um i'll go through some bullets on this and then we can talk about it uh, buy now pay later has been covered quite a lot on our uh, news shows before um so this is obviously a hot topic at the moment uh, the use of buy now pay later services like Klarna and clear pay on black friday more than doubled in 2020 uh, a study from payment services provider molly I uh, hope I've spelled that right uh, or pronounced that right. Uh, spanning 101,000 merchants uh, across Europe shows a 56% increase in the overall number of transactions on Black Friday between 2019 and 2020. Do you think it was 101,000 because they didn't want an even uh, I don't know. Anyway, uh, buy now, pay later services still only represented 2.5% of transactions, up from 1% in 2019. Uh, 10 million people in the UK have purchased products or services through a buy now pay later scheme over the last year um, however the research also highlights uh, re- uh, related risks with more than half of 18 to 34 year olds using the method having missed a payment and nearly two-thirds saying it is making them spend more uh, potentially increasing their chances of getting into debt um, quick quick question i'll throw out to the floor uh, is this a, a huge surprise uh, we know buy now pay later is growing uh in terms of customer numbers in terms of funding etc um did you actually think it was going to be uh higher than 10 million people this year uh, that is one in seven but nevertheless did you expect the numbers to be higher than that um that's I mean, quite I a think, big number yeah it is a really yeah it is a big number <laughs> yeah i think um you know it's, it's a huge growth. I think you have to look at it like year on year, and obviously it's not going to go from very niche to everywhere overnight. But I think it is you know, they're definitely growing, and you're definitely seeing more and more online uh, checkouts having these built in directly. So I think the growth isn't surprising in in that sense. And I think definitely I should probably declare up front: I'm definitely not a fan of buy now pay later as a trend. Um, I'm very worried about kind of some of the decisions that customers might make, especially this close to Christmas, a time of year when we know that there's extra pressure on wallets, you know, that people on lower or less stable incomes are sort of, especially this year, you know, the pressure to try and just have some kind of positive Christmas must must be huge. And I don't mm. know, I, I worry that customers are going to make decisions which come back to haunt them in the new year, especially given what we've touched on, that lots of the effects of 
and the pandemic are still to play out. So, yeah, it's a number that didn't surprise me, but it, it concerns me. Uh, Lars, you got thoughts on that? Yeah, I think um, there are certain situations when such schemes are can be quite helpful, right? So if you have, let's say, uh, a single mother raising two children, deciding to go uh, back to school to get, uh, you know, a second higher education, and they really need that laptop because, you know, it's 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 an important investment. It's it's what you use, and you use that type of a scheme to get that laptop right now because um, that's going to help you. It's going to help you, um, you know, grow and do a lot of fun stuff later down the line. What worries me is that the data was provided by, you know, as a result of Black Friday, right? And even, even in Estonia, which is, you know, on the other side of the world compared to the source of Black Friday, which is a day between a Saturday and when you eat turkey, right? Even in Estonia, I got literally dozens and dozens of pamphlets and papers and pages of advertisements to buy stuff. And like, if we, if you really think hard, right, is, is that, is that really the right thing to do um, when our planet is literally in danger? And it's Black Friday as an event itself that creates this mass hysteria to, to among consumers to buy stuff, to use uh, buy now, pay later schemes, but also from the producer's uh, side who Oftentimes what they do is they go out and they specifically produce goods that are of lower quality for Black Friday. And this whole vicious cycle just shouldn't exist for the sake of our you know, own children and grandchildren by the end of the day. But it's no single link that is, uh, you know, the cause of it. It's it's the whole ecosystem. Every Every little bit, you know, either adds a little bit more momentum to it or it could dampen it. And schemes who are, and, and various businesses who are in this cycle all need to ask like, okay, why do you exist? What customer problem are you really solving? And is this the right thing to do? Uh, it is worth just calling out that uh, Client has previously joined us on the show before to discuss their uh, stringent liability checks to make sure customers can pay back the loans. And they've always stressed that it's not in their best interest uh, if customers miss payments. And actually, I think the default rate, I'm not going to pretend that I remember the percentage, but it is incredibly low, especially sort of above that sort of 35 age group. So if you go from 35 to 45 and up, um, it is a really small default rate. Um, Ali, you you might have some uh, thoughts on this as well before I uh, plug you with even more stats. Well, I was going to say it links quite neatly as well to obviously the, 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 what we were talking about earlier with Stripe because organisations like Klarna, another organisation I'm waiting to IPO, um, organisations <laughs> like Klarna, they, they've got the data, they've got the technology. So if they can do, again, a very stringent liability check, fantastic. Um, and the more I'm going to misquote Alexander Hamilton, I don't think it was in the musical, but it might have been in the, the HBO show, but <laughs> the, the, the greater the debt, the greater the credit and the more debt and the more that you can show that, ah, I've taken out this debt, I've paid it back, the greater kind of credit that you can get. So I actually would say it has the potential to grow uh, someone's ability to get to get loans further down the line if it is stringent, if it is responsible. Mm. Um, and as Lars was saying, those if you're deliberately going out and making very cheap, low quality goods specifically for, for Black Friday, uh, you, you, you're, just, you're just a dick. 
Oh, I've got I've got a mate of mine who works for Amazon, and he was telling me about all the uh, all the shenanigans going on there in terms of getting ready for Black Friday. It sounded like a military mission, like absolutely unbelievable. Um, it, it is worth uh, just pointing out that Klarna is actually a bank. So you know, in in insofar as uh, we talk about you know mispayments and liability, and you know, uh, are you pro or, or not pro uh, buy now pay later? You know, their social responsibility and their regulatory responsibility is to lend in in a reason, you know, in a in, in a, a responsible manner. Um, so it is worth making that point. Uh, I did want to uh, mention one stat on this before we move on, which is according to the same research that we've just talked about, mobile payment methods uh, remain really small. So it accounted for just 0.25% of Black Friday transactions, up from 0.2% in uh, 2019. Um, I just for no reason whatsoever, with no basis of knowledge, I would have said that I'd be super surprised by that. Um, I guess, are you guys surprised by that? Would you expect that number to be higher? Surprised. Purely, purely anecdotally, I think about what I was doing last Black Friday and what I was doing this Black Friday. A year ago, I was in the office trying to kind of like keep an eye on deals like in lunch breaks and whilst making cups of tea. Whereas, you know, this year we're all working well not all of us but you know, a large portion of people are, are remote are at home so maybe it kind of changes the some of the nature of of the shopping experience you know like if i when i was browsing stuff online i was just doing it on my on my computer so um yeah it was, it was i suppose it's a surprise as a stat but i wonder kind of how much of a blip like this year might be given how less likely people are to be shopping on the move and people are much more likely to be sort of shopping kind of whilst sat down or in one place Cool. Um, let's move on uh, to the next story, which is uh, Visa and Circle uh, team up to bring the benefits of stable coins to businesses worldwide. Um, so Circle today announced a partnership with Visa that will a- enable businesses around the world to take advantage of the combined strength of the USD coin. That's the USDC, a fully reserved digital dollar stable coin supported across multiple public blockchains and Visa's global payments uh, platform and network. Uh, they They've also joined uh, Visa's FinTech Fast Track program, and as a result, Circle and Visa will work together to educate companies in the FinTech Fast Track program and select marketplace partners looking to take advantage of the power of digital uh, dollar stable coins for global scale uh, payouts. Uh, they've also launched uh, a corporate card for businesses, uh, sorry, for business customers to spend their USDC at more than 60 million merchants worldwide who accept Visa. And Circle, interest, uh, interestingly, is the first crypto firm to announce a Visa corporate card. Uh, as a member of Visa's fintech uh, fast track program, Circle will provide a Circle account and an API uh, to customers with seamless digital dollar stablecoin uh, payout experience. Um, Sounds like I've just read the PR release, but it is actually a really interesting story. Um, to find out more, though, um, people way more qualified than myself to talk about it. Uh, we spoke to uh, Kai Sheffield, who's the head of crypto at Visa, and uh, Jeremy Allier, CEO of Circle. Uh, let's hear from them now. Hello, I'm Jeremy Allaire. I'm the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Circle, and I'm here with Kai Sheffield, who's the head of crypto at Visa. Hey, Kai. Hey, Jeremy. Um, Circle is going to be one of the first firms, I think actually the first crypto firm to uh, announce and and ultimately roll out a Visa corporate card. 
Um, that's attached to a Circle business account that is a digital currency account using USDC. So uh, businesses that are operating in this highly global world will be able to store value in, in digital currency uh, and get the other benefits of that, as well as utilize that with uh, their employees and uh, use that with 60 million uh, visa merchants worldwide, um, which is an industry first. Uh, this, the second piece is, is something which I'm really excited about, which is really introducing a way to deliver seamless, stable coin-based payouts to Visa's growing network of partner wallets. Uh, and then finally, um, you know, we're going to be working together to educate and enable Visa's global network of hundreds of fintech partners in its fintech fast track program and select marketplace partners that are really looking to take advantage of the power of digital dollar stable coins for payouts uh, and for integrating this kind of infrastructure into their own products and services. So that's uh, that's what we're doing. Super excited. Um, Kai, would love to hear your perspective on this too. Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. So we're, we're incredibly excited to, to partner with Circle. And you know, we've been you know, closely you know, following the, the growth of, of stable coins uh, over the past year. Uh, and we've been, you know, partnering with, you know, a number of, of digital currency wallets uh, that are coming to us that are, you know, looking to issue Visa credentials and use Visa as a bridge uh, to enable consumers uh, or businesses uh, to be able to spend from a balance of USDC at our, you know, network of, of 60 million merchants. And so we've, you know, started to, to work with Circle to, you know, figure out, you know, how can you expand the potential of you know, stable coins like USDC to a greater set of, of businesses. You know, and we think that they represent you know, really a, a new form factor of existing you know, fiat currencies. Uh, but in order to get the benefit you know, of, of this new form factor, you need to have you know, great business-facing APIs. Uh, and that's what Circle's platform provides today. And then you need to have you know, a network of digital currency wallets that can receive payments. And that's what Visa has been building you know, over the past year you know, with a number of partnerships uh, that we've announced. And so we think there's you know, an incredible opportunity to combine you know, the power of you know, Circle's APIs with Visa's existing products and services to make it easier for businesses across the world uh, to be able to, to leverage USDC for new payment flows. So super, super interesting story. Uh, and I guess, you know, again, opening this one up to the floor, um, Visa has become the first card network for choice for digital currency wallets with over 25 approved card programs connecting to them. I mean, a Visa leading the game in this and, and what's the benefits for them uh, with this kind of partnership? So Visa is a really large company, a global company. And um, I can only imagine um, that, uh, this is one of a large number of different steps that Visa takes to uh, solidify and grow their payments business. Um, whether or not it's going to be blockchain that is going to dominate the market, it could be. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why it it could be. Um, it might not be. There are a lot of reasons why it might not be as well. So um, if if they have the resources, if they have um, a good strategy to to 
um, take a step uh, towards that direction. Why not? Yeah, and I guess it's a uh, the, the the one thing I would say, and maybe actually, Lars, you, you could comment on this as well. One of the interesting things I've always looked uh, around stable coins is that um, bank, uh, any financial institution that issues them, any banks that hold them, etc., has to hold the capital behind the stable coin, which means your capital reserves are, are growing, you know, exponentially as you issue more and more coin. Is that, in your opinion, or in anyone's opinion, on the on the uh, on on the show is that a a worthy investment as in your your return on investment maybe in the short term or the medium term um because you know ultimately all it is you know to a, to a degree is just you know pegging a coin to that dollar but you have to keep that you know that physical cash if you like and i just wondered what your, your opinions were on that so it's really difficult to assess whether or not a particular coin is a good investment as such or not um uh, coming from a payments company, we always evaluate whether whether um, a coin is a good payment method as such or not. And the way how we've looked at it is we we go to our customers and ask, okay, what do you what do you care about when it comes to payments? Well, they they tell us really um, a couple of things. They want payments to be really fast, instant. They want payments to be really cheap, and they want uh, full transparency and, and clarity uh, around every payment. Whether the technology behind it is blockchain crypto um, or a basic uh, relational data uh, database that sits in a central bank or a payment scheme. Ultimately, when it comes to large volumes of payments, people don't really care. People just want those three things. And uh, so far, the way how we've approached it, it's we've, we've used the uh, classic technologies because they work really well for these particular purposes. Whether or not they will continue to work um, you know, as well to solve this problem over the next 10, 15 years. Uh, I guess we'll see. It's really hard to tell. Yeah, I think um I think this is a really exciting time for for stable coins. Um there was another really interesting story that came out from Circle, I think a couple of weeks ago as well. You're not in the same space, but they're doing some really interesting things, I think, in in partnership with like the US government actually to help facilitate uh, international aid payments across across borders. So that was a, a really, really, you know, obviously a different use case, but really interesting to start to see that you know, we've maybe now matured beyond the point where stablecoin is just a a novelty or something that's new and exciting. And we're actually starting starting to move into the space of working out what is the potential for this? Like actually what, which of these processes can it, can it revolutionize? Can it, you know, to take your points, Lars, are those three things around, you know, uh, speed and cost and clarity, like all of those things, stablecoin probably would claim that it can, it can help address. So it, I think I'm ex- excited to see what other use cases emerge in 2021. Um, and obviously this kind of visa partnership is only going to help take stablecoin out into more situations and mm. test its worth in different situations so yeah uh, it's, it's, it's definitely uh it's interesting to see what the adoption will be like as this inc- improves both from a business perspective because there's obvious benefits to, to having it running through a supply chain but then also from a consumer perspective you know and how transferable that is from i suppose a, a state a coin a stable coin or you know through to cash um and you could say that that's one of the biggest tech trends that we might see over the next, let's say, two, three years is, you know, how that kind of technology develops and how mainstream it becomes that people are talking about, you know, you know, trading coins or paying in coins in the same way that they do with, you know, uh, with, with, with card payments now. I'm not sure we'll get there in that time frame, but it is uh, it is super interesting to, to, to think about how that might uh, might morph. Um, really silly question. And apologies if this is a really silly question. 
So a stable coin uh, such as this one here, is that the same as a central bank digital currency? Or am I completely missing the mark there? I think uh, uh, you almost got it right. It's a question of like who issues uh, that coin, and a, and a C, CBDC, a central bank digital uh, coin or currency, is one that is actually issued by the central bank itself. It's kind of like um, imagine the Bank of England or the ECB issuing cash. Like they're they're the ones printing you know pound notes or euro notes. They would be under CDBC. They would be issuing that coin themselves too. Yeah. So it, it, with that in mind, just to kind of, sort of put it out there, so obviously China, with their central bank uh, digital currency, is doing incredibly well with that at the moment. Do you think that's going to have a much faster adoption because they don't have to have to have the capital requirements behind it as you do with, say, uh, a, a US dollar stablecoin? I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the US. Um, I think their current nominated new head of, of the OCC, I think not being confirmed yet, but you know, is rumoured to be, I think is ex-coin based and is rumoured to be much more kind of a favour of this space, you know, how much permission he'll have individually to kind of push through something up and change, we'll have to wait and see. But you know, I think it'll be interesting to have you know, the the major kind of financial uh, regulator in, in the US much more open to changing this space and, and implementing that at a, at a federal level or a government level. It's worth um, it's worth anyone in the UK who's interested or anyone's interested, you know, who's listening to the show. The FCA in the UK has written a consultation paper about uh, CBDCs, uh, which is which which is a worthy read for background, etc. You can find that on the FCA website. Um, we'll, we'll move on. Uh, we're now going to come on to stories as we're getting to the end of the show, the stories that we didn't have time to cover in full, um, but still deserve a shout out. Um so, Kate, would you like to start? Sure. So, our first story is from, from our friends at TechCrunch. So, Monzo has picked up an additional £60 million in funding. It's been reported this week that Monzo has closed another round of £60 million in funding, which is effectively an extension of its previous top-up round in June. This apparently saw Monzo valued by private investors at around £1.2 billion, which isn't too shabby, but was actually roughly 40% lower than the valuation that they had before the coronavirus pandemic. To quote Monzo's CEO, T.S. Anil, he said, we've raised £125 million this year, achieved strong organic growth, and are now nearing 5 million customers, all while becoming the most switched to bank in the UK and the top rated for customer service. This news demonstrates the confidence that both our customers and investors have in Monzo. But... This is where he stopped speaking and I, we start speaking. Like some other <laughs> banks and fintechs, the coronavirus crisis has resulted in Monzo seeing customer card spend reduce at home and unsurprisingly abroad, which means that it's generating less revenue from interchange fees. So overall, it feels like 2020 has been a bit of a mixed year for Monzo, to say the least. So as we've touched on today, you know, a lot of the recent industry chatter has been focused on Starling hitting profit for the first time. So unsurprisingly, it feels like Monzo are keen to use this raise to demonstrate that investors are still backing them, you know, buying into kind of their overall longer term strategy, and that they've also stabilised their valuation after that down round in the summer. But you know, whilst they've undoubtedly taken a hit on the retail side, they are reporting growth on the business banking side. I think apparently sort of sixty thousand business customer signups now, up from around twenty five thousand in the summer, and they apparently say you know, they've got more than one hundred thousand customers across its paid for current accounts, so Monzo Plus. And Monzo Premium, despite industry commentators being mildly underwhelmed by by the benefits that it offers, so a mixed picture. But it'll be interesting to see how they deploy this additional funding going into next year, 
And I'm personally still waiting for, for an update on, on their next move in the US. So I'll be interested to see if this money is, is UK based or, or kind of part of their international growth plans. Yeah, and uh, their US business might be helped uh, by our next story because HSBC uh, are considering exiting from the US retail banking market. Uh, so this was an article in the FT. So HSBC is weighing up a complete exit uh, from retail banking in the US after narrowing the options uh, for how to improve performance at its struggling North American business. HSBC seeks to allocate resources away from the US in favor of more profitable businesses in Asia. And anyone who's looked at their annual reports uh, and their Q3 results will know that um, their U.S. business is relatively struggling, especially compared to their business in Asia. Um, closure of the U.S. retail network would mark the end of the lender's 40-year-long attempt to run a full-service universal bank in the country. Uh, the division made a pre-tax loss of, oh good, I've got the stats, $518 million, uh, in the first three quarters of the year, following losses of uh, $279 million last year and $182 million in 2018. Uh, not, not a good trend. Managers are also likely to recommend trimming HSBC's investment bank client roster to focus on international clients, which is an interesting move. Uh, those with only domestic U.S. businesses, uh, or sorry, those with only U.S. domestic business, which are less profitable, will be de-emphasized. Against this backdrop, there is a strong case uh, for completely leaving retail banking or to adopt a digital-only uh, focused model on international clients from the Chinese or Indian diaspora, even though uh, that is you know, in theory, a crowded market. Um, I, from my perspective, I think, you know, job cuts looming, they've been highlighted in the media. Uh, under that kind of backdrop, super pressure on their results. And again, the geographic disbursement of where they're making money and not making money uh, is, is is really evident to see if you look at their results. Um, so it doesn't strike me as a massive surprise that they want to get out of this sector. Ali, you've got a quick comment on this one. I'll just say, how many uh, markets do they have to leave before they have to change their slogan? <laughs> good shout good shout touche touche um kate do, do you want to do the uh do the next one sure um us next story is over for nextra so revolu have tapped up modular api to launch an early salary feature in the uk so revolu is launching a salary advance feature enabling its three million uk customers to draw down their paycheck a day early each month so to do this, they're piggybacking off Modular's direct access to the Bank of England to introduce the new service, which taps into the bank's payment scheme for prompt release of funds. And Nick Staronsky, the CEO and founder at Revolu, says you know, early access to salaries could be a genuine lifeline for many during these tough economic times. With Modular, we've been able to deliver better services and experiences to millions of UK customers. My take on this, you know, as a feature, I suspect this isn't going to be new to many of our, our listeners. It's something that we've already seen in other markets, you know, particularly in the US, where Chime obviously rolled it out as one of their main early offers to customers to kind of help that, that early acquisition drive. But I'm interested to see how well this lands in the UK. I think it goes about saying that there's still lots that fintech in the UK can do to help customers get access to their wages in a way that better fits with their everyday lives. And I think companies like Wage, like WageStream, for example, are really interesting. Uh, and gig economy and zero hours workers um, definitely have quite specific needs. But you know, I don't think they're being addressed. But I think this kind of feature probably appeals more in the US because you know, that's a, a market where people are more likely to be paid weekly or fortnightly. And the skeptic in me just says this is a play for Revoluter try and move more salaries over into their account away from incumbent banks. But um, Lars, did you have some thoughts on this? 
Yeah, I think um, uh, if you really think about it, like this problem even shouldn't exist in the first place. The problem exists because uh, for some reason we can send money to Australia, you know, instantaneously, but salaries in this given country take several days to arrive. Um, my hopes are that within the next couple of years, uh, we're going to see uh, larger shifts to actually paying people out instantaneously using, you know, modern payment methods. Mm. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Um, let's go to the and finally story. And it is from FinTech Finance, no less. Uh, Ali throws his hands up in the air like he scored a goal. Um, Mogo uh, uh, launches new interactive rainforest mode in its app. Um, so Mogo, an, a Canadian financial technology company focused on digital financial solutions that help their customers get in control of their financial health, uh, as well as fighting climate change. Their prepaid card that is designed to help Canadians move away from the overspending associated with credit cards, whilst also being the first card to help fight climate change by automatically offsetting CO2 with every dollar spent using the card. That's pretty cool. Love to see the tech behind that, but that's pretty cool. Uh, they have now upgraded their app to include an interactive rainforest mode. Uh, so rainforest mode includes the sounds and visuals of the Amazon rainforest. Ah, this is where this is going. Uh, and is designed to evoke a calming, zen-like atmosphere aimed at helping users be more mindful of their spending uh, to not only reduce their carbon impact, but also to become more in control of their spending to achieve better financial health. Uh, the Mogo CEO, I think I've pronounced it three different ways during this uh, during this. Yeah, I've done Mogo Mojo, but anyway, um, our goal is uh, or was to gamify the experience of saving money and the planet and rainforest mode really takes this to a whole new level. We believe the future of financial health will look more like a game than a typical banking app. Uh, Ali, please pronounce it right. What is it? Oh, don't, don't do that to me. <laughs> uh, it, it's a... <laughs> it's a... Um, uh, thoughts on this. Uh, it, it actually started like this could have been a, a main feature. And I was like, well, uh, you know, I was like, oh, this is really cool. And then we got into, you know, the interactive sounds and the visuals of the Amazon rainforest, which is still pretty cool. But, you know, I guess that's why it's here. Um, what do you think of this? Is it, uh, you know, would it be calming to have your financial app uh, report rain off for its noises at you while you're using it, uh, Lars? <laughs> I mean, why not? I mean, people are so different and uh, all all over the world. And and if some people find that they are going to now spend less because uh, they're hearing um, the sounds of parrots and wind and rain and um, moving leaves, then why not? I guess the interesting bit here is is how much are they actually going to offset? Because there are a lot of companies out there trying to save the planet. And I think this is absolutely fantastic, right? Um, but as we as we progress on that, it almost becomes a question of like, but how much? Is it is it is it really? Is it is it going to make me just feel good? Or or are they actually solving your problem? Now uh, from from Mogo's release, I think it has the potential to 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 actually address this, which is really cool. So I'd be really curious to see the numbers behind, like how how large their impact is going to be through that. Mm. Yeah, I um I really like obviously the yeah as Lars has touched on some of the kind of core mission stuff, and it's interesting that they're focused on a prepaid card because they've said they want to help people kind of get more in control of of their credit usage. So I think lots of good things. I suppose personally, I don't know if I find rainforest very zen. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it would kind of make me think of like snakes and like beasties and insects and things. I don't know if that's, I mean, I grew up in the countryside, so I'm not like entirely precious, but um, 
I'm yeah. a I'm a London city boy, and I you know Zen for me is just traffic. <laughs> <laughs> Kate, the sound of you, noisy cars. <laughs> Kate, for you, they're going to launch the ocean version of this, especially because it's it's a big myth that it's the rainforests that are the world's lungs. Actually, it's the plankton in the oceans that generate the largest amount of oxygen. So for you, they're going to make you a special version. Ah. Yes, yes, that's what I'm waiting for. Yeah, <laughs> when they when they get that on board, I'm going to emigrate to Canada instantly, purely to access this service. That's what you call tailored financial products. I like it. Um, but by the way, just just, just to mention it, just because we we can and we always do when it uh, pops up. Uh, this isn't the first time an app has employed specific noises aligned with their brand. So Anna Money's app meows like a cat. Yes, it does. Um, we've we've featured it on here about a hundred times. Uh, whenever you make a payment, um, which I suppose brings me to a, a quick straw poll. What would be your favourite noise? In life or like no, associated when you, to- no, 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 associated to the point. When you make a payment, what would be your ideal noise? Depends what the payment's for. Oh, Ali, uh-huh. come on. It was supposed you, to be a quick straw poll. <laughs> if it's McDonald's, it's just a voice that says don't. <laughs> uh, nice. Yeah. Ka-ching, says Laura, the producer. I like that. That's good. Um, cool. Right. That wraps up this week's new show. Thank you so much to all our guests. Um, and we'll go around now and ask where can people find out more about you. Uh, Lars, uh, thanks so much, by the way, for dialing in from uh, Estonia. Where can people find out more about yourself? Uh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, all you need to do is Google us. That's it. Cool. I love that. Um, Ali, yourself? Uh, I'm uh, Ali Patterson everywhere. And uh, you can also <laughs> sign up, uh, I'll do a little plug, sign up at fintechf.com. Get a hard copy magazine in the post for free forever. But very much. Aren't you supposed to be in some form of rap battle or something? The, 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 last, the last one of these I was on, you're supposed to be fighting somebody. We're, uh, uh, do you know, we were doing a bit of, um, of um, Among Us uh, is what it's going to be instead of a rap battle. Although, just as a little teaser, um, I'm a big fan of epic rap battles of history on YouTube. Definitely check it out. Uh, Im- imagine what it would be like to see a Monzo versus Starling epic rap battles of history. Oh, I have to watch this space. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, cool. Uh, Can you imagine a world where um, all the banks and fintechs start playing Among Us? That would be one epic (laughs) evening. (laughs) Oh, dear. Um, TSB was not the imposter. (laughs) The spinning out in space. All right, all right, all right. Let's get back to it. Uh, Kate, where, where can people find out more about yourself? Uh, sorry, this is going to be deeply boring now after that, that wonderful diversion. Um, I'm just you know, Kate Moody on LinkedIn or at K8Moody on, on Twitter. Cool. Um, I'm Adam Davis on LinkedIn. I'm also Adam D8 on Twitter. I never knew you were K8. Um, eight's my lucky number. Ian Wright from the Arsenal days. Um, I just thought, anyway. you know, I couldn't get Kate Moody, so K8 seemed to be uh... the closest I could get. I see, I see, I see. It makes sense. Um, Thanks so much for listening. Um, If you like what you've heard, uh, subscribe to our podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review. Uh, It helps us to make uh, this show better and also helps others to find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you very much. And uh, for this week, goodbye.